We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome to episode 63 of the Rock Art Podcast. And since you're hearing my voice, Chris Webster, that means I'm interviewing Dr. Garfinkel. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about serpent imagery in rock art. Stay tuned. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's Chris Webster here. And since it's me you're listening to right now, that means I'm interviewing Dr. Allen again. How's it going? Here we are in this holiday season. So it's a festive time and a great time to be uh, thinking about uh, all things theological. That's right. That's right. This is the last episode to release this year in 2021. All Everything else will be in 2022 after this. So hopefully if you're listening to this in real time, you have a, a good end to the year and a start to the next year. So let's talk about rock art. Now, one of the things that I've always been curious about, and you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, which kind of spawned this episode, was some of the different themes that you see throughout rock art, right? Like there's there's certain things that you see in different areas of the country, different areas of the world that are, I guess, consistent, right? That you see frequently and, and have, but have possibly different meanings to different groups. And one of those things is snakes or serpent imagery. So... We're going to talk about that today, but first I want to know how you got into, I guess, thinking about this particular imagery in rock art and, and where, we, where the beginning is. I think my interest in rock art harkens back to uh, 
you know, the, the, the book that I read back in 1968 that was written by Campbell Grant. And I'm known for my association with Koso rock art, which one is, is one of the most naturalistic or representational kinds of rock art sometimes, certainly in the, in North America, but even sometimes we think about it even in the world as being very, very much so on that uh, plateau. And so I find it easier mm -hmm. to understand or at least begin to deconstruct and hypothesize the meanings of rock art if I could tell what they are, what the elements are. And so design elements, if you're picking apart a panel of rock art, are of course the, the basic ingredients, the sort of atoms and molecules of the constellation. And so... That was one of the ways that I began to think about rock art, thinking about it by way of deconstruction of what the major elements of a rock art panel are. What is depicted and why? What is a consistent element, a consistent figure? Something that I can at least, we can agree on as rock art researchers as to what we're looking at. It could be a bighorn sheep, it could mm -hmm. be a deer, it could be a, a, a bear. It could be a otlatl or a bow and arrow or a hunter or a, a man on horseback wearing a cowboy hat, but something that consistently is portrayed in rock art. And at least we have, uh, at a very rudimentary level, an understanding of what the artisan was trying to portray. Not, in the mean, not necessarily the meaning, but at least the figurative sure. element of what it's uh, what it's meant to be. How's that? Yeah, and no, that's good. And so, so keeping with the theme today, and, and your study of Koso rock art over the last forty plus years, what sort of serpent imagery expression have you seen on the rock art that we can clearly see is definitely serpents or snakes uh, on the rock art? Because some some things could just be, you know, a squiggly line or even like a straight line or something like that. And maybe the artist intended that to be, uh, you know, some sort of serpent imagery, but we would never tell, right? Like we just can't, we just can't know. To address your question, what's interesting is I didn't intuitively think that there were much, much in the way of serpent elements or figures in the Koso rock art. I really did not. This is a relatively mm -hmm. recent sort of epiphany or revolution or discovery in my own work. Everyone talks about Koso rock art says what's in the majority, you know, overwhelmingly 25 to 50% are bighorn sheep or bighorn sheep related iconography. And sure, that's, I, I'm sure that that, that is a, sure. that is a valid you know, sort of analytical element to tease out. But it's only recently when uh, a colleague of mine, uh, someone who I've uh, written a book and, and a couple of articles with from uh, Guanajuato University in Mexico City, uh, asked me this very question, said, well, you know, how many snakes are there in Coso Rock Garden? Do they, are they a dominant theme? And I really didn't know how to answer that very well. I said, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, then I began to review the thousands and thousands of images that I have. And surprisingly, they were everywhere. Now, when I say they're everywhere, some, sometimes they're very realistically rendered. 
And when I say very realistically mm-hmm. rendered, I mean that they have a, a specific form on the head of the snake that tells me it is a rattlesnake. Now, this is another thing I didn't realize yeah. until recently, that the, that the sort of this, this triangular element to the head and the way it's configured is specifically a characteristic of snakes that are poisonous. They have certain, certain hmm. gla- glands that predispose it to have a certain head form, and these poisonous snakes have that form. And so I can tell you that when I'm seeing these images to a certain degree, they're definitely depicting not just any snake, just any serpent, but they're depicting a deadly serpent, most likely a rattlesnake. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, one question that I was going to have was basically, how long do we think snakes have been in this part of the world? Uh, Because I actually don't know a whole lot about, I guess, how... uh, how long snakes have been in that area. Snakes are a really, really old animal. The type, you know, snakes in general are really, really old types of animals like sharks, right? They've been around forever. And, you know, there's snakes on, I think, pretty much every continent for the most part. And except for maybe Antarctica, uh, at least not anymore. And, you know, I was kind of wondering about that, uh, like how long they've been around. Because definitely when you go out into the coastal region today, I mean, chances are you're going to see a rattlesnake. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to see a, you know, a Mojave green or something like that. So they're definitely prolific nowadays. And I imagine they were back in the time that Native Americans were producing this rock art. Well, you, you could speak to that issue because you might share a little bit that, yeah. that you were in the Coso Range, the China Lake Basin, mm-hmm. doing a survey work extensively for, I'd oh. say, almost a year's time. And, uh, during that time, it was one of the t- yeah. times that the rattlesnakes were, in fact, out, correct? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, every time you'd have like a rain or something like that, too, not not only did desert vegetation suddenly appear where there wasn't any before and flowers and things like that, but snakes as well, as far as as well as other animals. And, you know, the Mojave green rattler was particularly bad because it will... It'll chase you like you know, where other rattlesnakes will just kind of coil up and, and maybe stay away unless you're approaching it. Keep going. But, you know, this one will just be violent and, and come after you. Yeah, it, it was just terrifying. And um, wow. and one of the reasons that we were told that they're particularly bad at the China Lake Naval Weapons Center uh-huh. is because their primary predator humans human ranchers shoot snakes all the time Uh, and their primary predator humans don't generally do that anymore because you can't just carry a gun out on China Lake Naval Weapons Center and start shooting snakes. Right. And it's not like base patrol is out there shooting snakes all the time either. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that the way it is now is really similar to the way it was before say Western civilization came in with their guns and started shooting the way it was back then. Um, I would imagine they're, they're back to their old, their old ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that's rather interesting. I have a, an anecdotal story as well. It was my first uh, piece of field work. I volunteered to work with my friend, Eric Ritter, to help him with his PhD dissertation in Baja, California. So he uh, had us mm-hmm. do some transects. This is, of course, in the desert of Baja, right there in the, near the Sierra de San Francisco, in the heartland of Baja. And it's certainly a desert. And it's certainly filled with rattlesnakes. 
And as I was on my transect, hmm. I noticed when I went straight ahead, I heard a voluminous sound of many, not just one, but many uh, snakes going on simultaneously. Jeez. So I said, well, I better not, I better try not, not going that direction. So I tried to the right oh, and I tried to the left and literally I was surrounded by uh, rattlesnakes. So I decided maybe I'm just going to, you know, uh, exit mm. stage right and, and, and move completely out of that area. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the rattlesnake country, I think they uh, enjoy living in that very xeric, very, very hot and dry oh, yeah. situation, especially with all those places for them to live in those uh, volcanic boulders. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually surprised there's not more imagery containing serpents because of the deadly nature of these things and how, uh, how prolific they are and how violent they can be on your, your daily life. Like, I don't know how many times somebody was probably sleeping out on the prairie in whatever structure they happened to be in at the time. And a rattlesnake just slithers in and, you know, bites you or bites your kid or, or threatens your family. I mean, I don't think the Coso bighorn sheep were doing that very often. No. And so it makes me wonder, I guess, why, why they're not represented as much in in various ways in the rock art record as compared well, to they say, are Big they Horn are sheep. to an extent they are to an extent I, I can jump and mm-hmm. I can jump and turn and explain that and uh, maybe I'll just do that first of all you mentioned something that sort of I, I couldn't let go of this one <laughs> and that's when it rains the snakes come out well. Yeah, this is what the native people saw as well, and they they identified the snakes as the bringer of rain. And I said, "What the mm. hell is that all about? Snakes live in the desert, you know, and and they have you know places in the ground, etc. I don't see them wandering around the the uh, you know the springs and ponds as much as I I do in terms of coiled up in these rocky habitats. Well, it turns out that when it rains, their burrows flood. And so they are brought out by the rain. So they come out of their, mm-hmm. their homes. So, of course, when one sees the rain and then sees the snakes, there's a causational association that one would, of course, then immediately sort of come to the conclusion. Right. Well, these, these snakes are bringing the rain. Now... The other thing that's important to understand, and this goes cross-culturally in terms theologically throughout the world, or thinking about what they call the semiotic hallmark animals, the indexical animals Mm -hmm. that are good to think and that end up being deified, you know, some sort of a super mundane being for a different religious element. And that is, they're always the apex predators or the biggest thing that has the most power and sort of mystery to them. So when you think about the artiodactyls, the ungulates, these hooved creatures with enormous horns, makes sense. They are a, a mysterious bunch and they seem to have a lot of attributes that one would convey prestige and headship or if you're thinking about the apex predators a mountain lion Mm. or a bison or um, in some cases even an antelope 
or a, uh, a bear. So it tends to be some sort of a, a ferocious animal that potentially can kill or one that is very mysterious and very, very charged with anima, with, with vitality and strength and also a very unusual and prestigious look to them. How's that? Like the Ibex, another mm. example. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So those are the ones that convey or that indigenous people, you know, anybody who you want to talk to all over the world, even some of the great religions as well, if you think and hearken back to them, they tend to display or focus or showcase these animals. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a good spot to take our first break. Let's do that and come back on the other side and keep talking about snakes and serpent imagery in rock art. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing, and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to episode 63 of the Rock Art Podcast. And this is Chris Webster. I'm interviewing Dr. Alan Garfinkel today. And we are talking about snake and serpent imagery on rock art. So you mentioned a little bit in segment one about what some of this looks like in the Kosos where it's got that, you know, characteristic diamond head and you look at it and you go, that's a snake. But what are potentially some of the other shapes and representations of, of serpent imagery in rock art that you're aware of and have seen? Well, what's amazing is there's such a similarity cross-culturally. You have this circuitous body You've got some sort of a, mm-hmm. a diamond or circular head, and then you'll have something sort of, you know, identified as the rattlesnake's tail. Now, that's done with geoglyphs and taglios where they, you know, yeah. manufacture them on the desert pavement. And we've seen them in the Colorado River in California and Arizona, and also I'm sure all over the world. But uh, also you see that represented an ethnographically, mythologically sacred narrative described associated with the landforms themselves. So some of the landforms in the, in the deserts, California, but elsewhere, Great Basin, etc., all over the world, mimic the look and feel and nature of snakes. And those are exactly the places where 
indigenous people, native people have chosen to embellish the rocks with uh, tremendous numbers of images. So for instance, at Little Lake on the edge of the Coso range, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a uh, columnar basalt flow. And around that flow is the image that the native people called the rattlesnake. And you can see okay. it. It's plain as day. It's there. And the head of the rattlesnake is where the, um, uh, an enormous concentration of rock art has been parlayed there at the head of the snake there at the very edge of the water, hmm. which of course, you know, mimics a number of other things. Now, sometimes the image of the snake is not as, tr- not as transparent as we would like. In other words, I've been looking at this Koso rock art for nigh on 50 years and never noticed that these decorated animal human figures are embellished with the patterns of the uh, snakes. So in other words, really? there's, yeah, there's two major patterns for snakes that are depicted in the sacred narrative or mythology of Numbik or Uto Aztec and people. And that is Kogo, which is the, um, you know, the, the snake that mimics the look of the rattlesnake. It's a gopher snake. And then the rattlesnake itself. So the rattlesnake is pretty transparent. It's got a diamond pattern. And the kogo has a rectangular pattern. Well, if you look at these figures closely, you'll notice that that diamond pattern is depicted on, I would say most, if not uh, many, of these decorated animal human figures. Hmm. Additionally, that pattern or those figures, those animals themselves are part of the texture and the content and the interiors of these figures. They show snakes inside the bellies and inside the torsos of these figures. And it's undeniable. And I'd never noticed that before. Okay. Wow. So, so you have, first of all, the snake pattern, the design elements embellishing the figures, and you have snakes visible inside the actual forms and torsos of these animal human figures. Now, if you go even further outside of just Koso, in the Takic world, the Serrano, the Katanamuk, the Aliklik, all these various native people in California had a pattern, a religious pattern, that the women, the young girls, and the boys, as they came of age, would run to a rock and paint and depict their impressions of the rattlesnake. They called it the rattlesnake image, and what it is is a series of diamonds. You can see it plain as day. They're all over the rock, and so there's that one. Now, they use that same, that same depiction on their basketry. And so if you look closely at the basketry, there are necked jars that are called rattlesnake baskets that, for instance, the yokuts would actually capture and have a rattlesnake ceremony with rattlesnakes in those baskets. Now, on top of that, if you go to the Kawaiasu, the people that are Southern, Southern Paiute speakers, 
they had a basket called a taragabadi. And it was a small necked jar. And it had that rattlesnake design around it. And mm-hmm. that was the basket that was used with the shaman and also with other people who wanted to obtain an altered state of consciousness. And they took, you know, the actual hallucinogenic hmm. plant, the detura, and then made a brew out of it and had, had it in that specific container. It was made for that. And it was seen as a prestigious uh, basket, one that is also used for gifting other people and, and as a sp- special treasured element. So also the names of the designs relate back to what they called those baskets. So they use the words that exist for a rattlesnake and for a gopher snake as the name of the design and the name of those hmm. baskets. And, and that was shocking. I didn't realize that until one of my colleague colleagues who I was working on a, a paper with told me, oh yeah, Alan, they, they call them by the same names. <laughs> so I said, well, nice. that's, uh, yeah. that's very nice to know. And, and that would certainly obviously show the significance and the recognition of the importance of associating those design features, those embellishments with those specific animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And it was interesting to me too when you uh, walk back this a little bit to the what are the the what you call the uh, the pattern body anthropomorphs with the snakes in their in their in the, um, inside uh, their torsos inside their torsos and it, it just made me think that there is really snake imagery all around us in our world, right? Like, like things that mimic snakes from rivers to, um, you know, rivulets of water when, when it's during like a heavy rain to intestines. I mean, I'm sure people back in the day, they'd seen plenty of intestines in their lives and somebody is gored. So it's a base, basic part of our understanding. Now, hearkening back with that, you're probably aware of this, but, but you know, from the standpoint of thinking about the physiological and the neurophysiological element of snakes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we are built in, that our minds and our physiology is built in by way of, Mm -hmm. you know, manufacturing who we are, children who've never seen a snake will recoil at the depiction of those snakes from uh, Mm. nearly from from birth. It's some sort of a, a necessary innate software in our brains that have been developed into our physiology to recoil and know that this is a predator. This is someone that an animal and a thing that we don't want any part of, and we got to get out of it, get out of there. And so I find that to be amazing to see something that is so primeval, so instinctual as part of our physiology. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. But then it's also, it would make sense if you want to, I guess, if, if we have this innate feeling towards that sort of imagery, then one way to teach your young about the dangers of snakes would be to draw them in rock art and take them to these panels. Oh, where they yeah. Can learn, oh, yeah. They can learn and be That's educated exactly right, right. about these things. So that makes sense. Yeah. Use them as storyboards. Yeah. As the, and Native people have, have talked about that to us and said, well, Alan, these are, mm-hmm. these are, are, you know, our stories written on stone. These are from the ancients. 
and we use them to teach our young and, and to help them uh, enculturate them in terms of the things we value and the elements of things that we believe are important for them to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The original graphic novel. Yeah. There you go. Well, you know, one thing that, uh, just talking about imagery because uh, you mentioned uh, like the intaglios. Uh, I think there's a snake at the Blythe intaglios down in Blythe, California, right? Is there a snake there is, um, intaglio there, down there? there? Yeah. Very much so. Very distinctive, mm-hmm. uh, a serpentining element with a head and a tail. Shows the yeah. rattles on it, plain as day. And there's another yeah. one in the, this uh, actually on the south base of uh, China Lake that's done as uh-huh. an intaglio okay. where they actually moved rocks along a white face and mimicked and show showed the form and character of this serpentine being. And at the end of it, where the hmm. rattles are, there's a big rock cairn. On top of that, remember I was mentioning that the landforms sometimes mirror the snake. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a landform that's right there that looks like a snake and it's got an eye and a mouth and teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and it's right there below or it's actually the mm. canvas upon which the the intaglio, the the actual rock alignment, was done of the rattlesnake. Yeah, and three other like popular, you know, ancient snake imageries that I can think of too are one that's very similar to that, the Nazca lines down in Peru. There's uh, definitely at least one or two snake, massive, massive snake depictions down there. And they do that again by turning the rocks over and, and revealing the, the, the other color underside the rocks, which definitely. is really cool. But also Serpent Mound in Ohio. That's a man-made earthwork, Serpent yep. Mound. I've been there and we've seen that. And then more recently, just a, a little under a year ago, my wife and I were down in Cancun and we went over to, oh, why the heck can I think of the name of it? I'll think of it. But either way, that was that was really cool because the snake imagery coming down the side of one of the step pyramids, you could only see when the shadows were just right. Right. And, and then it looked like an undulating snake. It's a winter solstice sunrise. Yeah. Which of course, which of course is the shortest day of the year. And that's mm-hmm. what, and that's when the sun stops and it's March across the heavens and literally stops. Yeah. And so somehow they've set this up so that as that sun comes up during that time, it will zigzag across the plane and everyone in the world wants to go see it and take photographs of it. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. I have seen a video of it and it is rather impressive. I have to say. Yeah. It is just uh, super cool stuff. So, so anyways, the, the methodology that I've that I've used to try to understand snakes, which which hasn't been easy, by the way. I I I seem like like I had a block against it because I could not understand how these creatures, these snakes, would fit into the religious metaphor of a people that seemed to emphasize concepts of vitality and renewal and uh, the energetics of of life mm-hmm. because because when i think when 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 the europeans and the you know the industrial complex and the sort of the the religions that i was brought up with uh, talk about snakes they were the worst they were the ones that uh, mm. you know that represent sin and death and yeah. it was supposed to be uh, the mother of our creator that that crushed the head of the serpent <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, tried to 
overcome yeah, yeah. the the bad stuff, right? And what wasn't it that snake that started right, it all right. way back there in Eden? So yeah, yeah, well, yeah, for sure. It was hard for me to understand how how indigenous people turn this whole thing on its head, so that mm-hmm. that something is about life, and it's also about death. Something's about renewal, but also about the underworld and about the darkness. And, and both those concepts mm-hmm. can be living together very comfortably as one unified in particular images. And, you know, our philosophers and people like Levi Strauss and others completely embrace that and understand that. But that's something that's rather foreign to our rather linear understanding of the way we like to think about things as uh, modern educated scientists. Correct. That's right. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll take our final break. And it came to me, by the way, Chichen Itza is what I was thinking of. Okay. Chichen Itza. Uh, Got it. Chichen Itza. How, how, How can you even forget it? Anyway, with that, we'll be back in a minute for our final segment. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 63. And this is our third and final segment. And... We've talked about where some of this is. We've talked about what some of it looks like, these serpent imagery, these snake imagery, and, and what it looks like in other parts of the world as well. So let's talk about what it all means. What can we learn from looking at some of this stuff? What have you, Alan, discovered through your studies and, and learned through time in the next 15, 16 minutes? Tell me your entire life story as it pertains to snakes and serpents and rock art. What does it all mean? So one of the, you know, the sort of the, the most wonderful things that I've been able to discover is, of course, the Mesoamerican material is very rich and very helpful in terms of understanding deep time, Uto-Aztecan, and ultimately even Namek, Great Basin, Paiachishoni, understanding of myth and sacred narrative and and uh, religious cosmology. And when you think about that deep time relationship, one of the things that sort of comes to mind, it's almost like a scary picture, is this picture of what we call Quetzalcoatl, which was their greatest deity, and that was the plumed serpent. 
Well, Quetzalcoatl is, is an interesting element because, again, it mixes both bird-like plumage and a serpentine animal. So mm-hmm. why would one do that and how do those possibly even go together? And why is, why is there such a, a fixation? Yeah, right. Why is there such a fixation on these serpents? You know, what is their, what is their deal? <laughs> so I had to read and reread and study and, uh, you know, go, go the, to the nth degree. And I've spent years now searching and, and cleaning this information. And uh, we have a book coming out that's 80,000 words that will talk about the iconicity of the Uto Aztecans and a semiotic hallmark will be talking about serpents. But if I was to condense that into a little brief series of sound bites, here's what I would tell you. First of all, when you uh, open up a human being and you're looking into their interiors, there are veins and arteries and mm-hmm. the uh, stomach that appear akin to the form of a serpent. And to the indigenous mind, this had great significance. So there's that one. So it has an enervating, it has some sort of a a vitality to it. Snakes are liminal animals. What are liminal? They live in two worlds. They live on the surface of the ground and under the ground. And those kinds of animals, for some reason, appear to be those that people all over the world seem to focus on as having very special qualities. One of the things that uh, establishes a cosmology, a worldview, and a religious theology is the nature of the movements of the bodies of the heavens. When you're thinking about it and trying to understand how people came up with some of these ideas and some of these ways of thinking and the meaning of these particular figures, they watched the world and the world was a, a natural metaphor So as the uh, day and night passed, the sun would appear and then would disappear. The moon would appear and then disappear. And as would the heavens filled with stars, they'd move and they would change. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the subject matter for the understanding or the development of metaphors for this uh, theological element. When we think of the Aztec people, their metaphor was that there was a constant war going on in the heavens. And the fight was between the sun as a man, as a male figure in the main, and the moon as a female figure. A fight between day and night. Who's going to win? The night comes, the day comes, etc., etc. Well, how would they see that as a fight? Well, what do we see on the horizon as day turns to night or night turns to day? It turns to a crimson red color, and they saw that as the blood of the fight Hmm. that was actually manifesting. And they also saw the movement of the sun and the movement of the moon as personifying certain, certain animals. The sun was on the back of an eagle. And the moon was on the back of a jaguar and they'd be fighting each other for it. And the jaguar has spots and those spots became the uh, stars in the heavens. 
So that's just all part of this whole cosmological realm. When we when we see the the uh, snakes moving in its circuitous way across the across the ground, they see that as mirroring the movement of water. And so, like I mentioned in the first segment, if the snakes come out when it rains and the snakes bring the rain, and if the snakes are moving in a way akin to water, maybe they're water animals. And if they're water animals, maybe they in part are in charge of, or they're the super mundane being the shamanistic ancestor deities, in charge of growth, in charge of revitalization, in charge of renewal, in charge of the bringing up of fertility and the metaphor of creation. Well, how could that be, Alan? Aren't these animals that are, you know, killers? Well, yes, in one way. Maybe they're the bringer of death and the bringer of life. Well, how could that be? Well, what do we see? What do we see as a characteristic of rattlesnakes? They shed their skin. Hmm. There's not many animals that shed their skin, is it? <laughs> no, there's not. Well, and maybe, and maybe not that's. Too much. Yeah, so maybe that's something that is a metaphor for revivification or restoration or even resurrection, death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. So we have this we have this package of things that are all sort of packaged in this this wisdom. So it's about life. It's about plants. It's about water. It's about revivification. All these things in this little, just in this serpent. Mm-hmm is all is all packaged up here so yeah and when and when they're viewed in terms of the the serpent the rattlesnake the rattlesnake was seen as a almost a shamanistic ancestor deity some sort of a big man or a headship for the underworld well the underworld mm-hmm. at least amongst the Numic people the great basin Shoshones, many of them was not a place of badness or sin or violence. It was a wonderful world in which animals lived and they talked like people and it was a bit of a piece of heaven where they the animal master lived Hmm. and the animal master took care of those animals after they had passed away and every spring revivified them brought them back from death to life and they reappeared through various portals cracks in the rocks, through springs or seeps or ponds or what have you, and then they rebirthed themselves. Yeah. They were eternal. Certain The key animals, the large game animals, were in fact eternal. And so, okay. yeah, all those things and more. Wow. That is, I mean, that is really something, <laughs> right? It. it uh, Honestly, it kind of makes you wonder why they, I don't know, worshipped isn't isn't really the right word, revered or depicted even anything else, right? Because snakes are so... They, they worship snakes. Uh, snake, yeah. Snakes were, if you looked at the Hopi in uh, the American Southwest, who are a Yudo-Aztec and mm-hmm. isolate, they had a very famous ceremony. I think they have it to this very day. It's the snake ceremony, yeah. and they gather up snakes. 
and they handle them and they put them in their mouths and they uh, are part of a ceremony that it has to do with fertility and revivification and the bringing back of the corn and bringing the rain. Wow. It's also about renewal. It happens around, around the winter solstice time. And all of this package of information, all these cyclical elements intersect in a way to very powerfully communicate that mm-hmm. uh, we're living in a world that has cycles, it has metaphors and meaning. And if you look closely at the patterns and behaviors, the habits and habitats of these animals, they will teach you the lessons of the world. Hmm. It would be interesting for me to know, for me to learn about, I guess, how different cultures around the world view snakes when it comes to the different types of snakes there are. I'm just thinking about the the disparity between, say, something like Washington State, where I grew up, and yes. Australia, where 10 of the 10 most deadliest snakes on the planet all live in Australia, right? So, right, you know, Washington right. State... Yeah, we'd see a little gardener snake in the in the lawn and we weren't afraid yeah. of it. We'd pick it up. We didn't have deadly snakes yeah. where I lived, right? They just didn't exist. And yeah. yet yeah. in Australia, you probably wouldn't no, go near a snake as a right. child because you're just assuming it's going to kill you. Right. Right. So yeah, so I wonder So that 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 certain that certain yeah, certainly the nature of the venomous snakes or the poisonous snakes versus mm-hmm. those that are are not would certainly play into this. And as we yeah. look for these hallmark animals they vary from place to place and they 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 relate to the nature of the environment in the arctic it's the polar bear you know on the plains it's the mm-hmm. bison in the northwest coast sure. it's the salmon so the animals that are picked to be you know cosmically central to a people i think relate to their habits, their habitats, their subsistence, their settlement, but also cosmologically or, or almost, you know, preternaturally, the nature of who they are and their magical elements. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And it seems like there's, it seems like there's always at, at the very least two animals at opposite ends of a spectrum for a people, right? One is an animal they eat and another, another is an animal that eats them. And both of those animals were revered. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I like that. The, the eats, the eats and the eaters, right? That's right. right that's right. You respect yeah. them both. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, both. Man. Both ends of the spectrum. All right. Well, this has been a, a really great discussion about like a single a single element um, that we can see depicted in 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 rock art and in imagery and things like that. Any final thoughts on just your studies over the years and what you've learned and and just your your take on this whole thing regarding serpents? I think one last thing that's interesting. I was always puzzled by shamans and their coats. And why, and why okay. when they're depicted and why native people have this thing they call fringe? Well, I think it turns out that yeah. in, some, in some instances, they're trying to depict, they're depicting feathers, but in others, I think they're depicting snakes. I think they're actually huh. show, showing the, the sinuous and serpentining movements of those animals. So okay. I, th- I think there's a, there's a little bit of a, you know, and, and that, and that, of course, in, in modern day, 
people like like that fringe too. It comes back in. So so maybe even this very day we're mm-hmm. we're still enamored with snakes. <laughs> How's about that? Right. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I think with that, we will leave it. If you want to know anything about rock art uh, or, or a particular facet of rock art or a type or, you know, particular shape or animal that you're curious about, then, you know, send us an email through the contact form on the website at arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. You can find us there. You can also leave a comment anywhere where you find the podcast. So with that, I think we will leave it until next time. Hope you guys had a great 2021. If you're listening to this in real time and have an even better 2022. So we will see you next time. See you all later in the flip-flop. See you next week, gang. God bless. (laughs) Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.